This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Hey friends, I am officially back. It's the first official episode in well over a month, and I can't even begin to tell you how excited I am to be back. During that month, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to improve the Composer Chronicles and, frankly, all of Alexandrian media. I got the Adobe Creative Suite and learned how to use most of the programs in it within two weeks. A very basic understanding of them, of course. And this opened up my mind to endless opportunities, and I am so excited to take you along with me for this new leg of my journey as a podcaster, a content creator, and a historical musicologist. Now, you know that my products are free to all of my audience members, but if you are a fan of the Composer Chronicles, I invite you to join my Patreon page. Signing up starts at only $1.50 a month, less than a cup of coffee, which gives you access to early releases of the episodes. And those releases are all ad-free. You also get access to a member-only, behind-the-scenes podcast that gives you extra insight into how I make this show, with deleted scenes from my interviews. At higher levels, members start making extra content like merch discounts, content calendars, full-length video versions of my YouTube videos, and free copies of my anthology series, Opera Plus Ballet, which is formally titled Tales of Love, Lost Magic, and Reality. Becoming a member is an integral part to helping this show to grow. It helps me by funding new equipment and software, much like the Adobe Creative Suite, microphones, headphones, cameras, and so many other things. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash Chronicles and select a level you'd like to give at. That's patreon.com slash Chronicles. Again, thank you all for your continued support of this show, and I hope to see you over on the Patreon. The life of the Bohemian is not all that foreign of a concept to most artists. Some now and in the past have rejected the term, fearing its negative connotation. But at its core, a Bohemian is simply a person who is socially unconventional in an artistic way. In the mid-19th century, the term was imported into the English language from the French and was used to describe the non-traditional lifestyles of musicians, writers, artists, actors, and other artistic occupations in major European cities. Their unorthodox political and social viewpoints were often expressed through free love, frugality, simple living, and occasionally voluntary poverty. While the roots of the original French word extend back even further, it is this definition that we associate with the word today and the definition that Giacomo Boccini understood when writing one of his most famous operas, La Boheme. Today, La Boheme is one of the most regularly performed operas, 
having been performed roughly 618 times in 115 different productions. It is only second in line after Mozart's Timeless The Magic Flute, with 803 performances in 137 different productions. This is quite impressive, considering that there is 105 years between the two operas. This wouldn't be a Composer Chronicles episode if I didn't tell you that despite the tremendous success, the road to creating the opera wasn't an easy one. The journey was filled with stress and betrayal, and even Puccini's own stubbornness would get in the way at times. But what is the life of a true bohemian without a little bit of hardship? This is The Composer Chronicles, a storytelling podcast about music through the ages. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 73, La Vie de Boheme. It's a cold Christmas Eve in Paris. Marcello paints in his garret as his roommate and friend Rodolfo gazes out of the window. Although it is the middle of the day, the cold is unbearable. And in order to keep warm, they burn the manuscript of Rodolfo's latest drama. Colline, a philosopher and third roommate of this garret, comes home shivering and disgruntled. However, the fourth roommate, Chanard, the musician amongst the four friends, arrives home carrying food, wine, and cigars. He recently landed a job with an eccentric English gentleman in town. He was paid handsomely for this odd job, but now they had some money for some food, with a little extra. This food must be saved for the days ahead. Tonight they will celebrate his good fortune and Christmas by dining at the Café Momos. Their excitement is interrupted again, this time by their landlord Benoit, who has come to collect their rent. 
they distract him with some wine, let him boast about his amorous adventures, but when Benoit reveals that he's married, the friends push him out the room without the rent payment. Marcello, Chanard, and Colleen head out, but Rodolfo stays behind for just a moment to finish an article he's writing. Shortly after his friends leave, there is another knock on the door. A girl who lives in another room in the building. She explains that her candle has blown out and she has no more matches. As Rodolfo tries to assist her, she is briefly overcome with faintness. He helps her to a chair and offers her some wine. After a few minutes of rest, she says she feels better and must go. But she realizes that she has lost her key. A heavy draft blows through the open door, blowing out her candle again, and Rodolfo's in the process. They try to find the key in the dark, and Rodolfo finds it. Instead of giving it to her, he quietly pockets it. He takes her hands into his to keep her warm, and tells her about his life as a poet. She says that her name is Mimi, and describes her simple life as an embroiderer. They both realize that they have fallen in love, and he suggests that he stay home with Mimi tonight. But she decides to accompany him with his friends to the Café Momus. The streets of the Latin Quarter are filled with last-minute shoppers and street sellers announcing their wares. Rodolfo takes Mimi to buy a pink bonnet, while Colleen buys a coat and Chanel a horn. After shopping, the friends and Mimi gather at the cafe and begin to eat. As they dine, Musetta, Marcello's former sweetheart, arrives with her rich and elderly government minister admirer named Alcindoro. It's quite obvious to everyone that Musetta is only in this for the money at this point, and that she is tired of him. She notices that Marcello is there, ignoring her, and she sings a risque song to try and win him back. As Musetta is a singer, the crowd is delighted by this sudden performance, but Alcindoro is embarrassed. Knowing she has won back Marcello, she pretends her shoe is too tight and sends her elderly admirer to get it fixed for her. In the arms of Marcello at last, she concocts a plan to get them all out of the cafe unnoticed and without having to pay a single thing. Bill everything to Alcindoro when he returns. A few months later, we find Mimi searching Paris for Marcello as she coughs violently. He's currently living in a little tavern while painting signs for its innkeeper. She explains to him that life with Rodolfo is hard. He has abandoned her, believing that she is unfaithful. He tells her that Rodolfo is inside the tavern, sleeping, but he's more concerned with her cough. Rodolfo wakes up and comes looking for Marcello. Mimi hides and listens to their conversation. She learns that his jealousy is just a cover for his fear of her being consumed by a deadly illness. He's scared. 
He can't help her being so poor. He hopes that by pretending to be unkind to her that she will seek a wealthy suitor who will be able to afford to give her the help that she deserves. Marcello knows that Mimi is listening, and he tries to quiet Rodolfo so she doesn't hear. But it's too late. Her weeping and coughing reveal her presence. Mimi says she will do as he wishes, but as the conversation continues, they realize they can't be without one another and conclude with staying together until the spring. A few months after this event, Marcello and Rodolfo are trying to work, but they are distracted by the fact that their girlfriends have left them for wealthy lovers. Rodolfo has seen Musetta in a fine carriage, and Marcello has seen Mimi dressed like a queen. Chanard and Colleen arrive with a very frugal dinner, but they pretend that it's a large banquet to keep their spirits up. Musetta suddenly appears in the middle of a mock duel between Chanard and Colleen, saying that Mimi has left her wealthy patron. She found Mimi laying in the street, severely weakened by her illness, but she had enough strength to ask Musetta to bring her to Rodolfo. Mimi is assisted onto a bed, and briefly she feels as if she is recovering. Meanwhile, Musetta and Marcello leave to sell Musetta's earrings in order to buy medicine, and Colleen leaves to pawn his overcoat. Shannar leaves with Colleen to give Mimi and Rodolfo some time together. They reminisce about the day that they met before Mimi is overwhelmed by a fit of coughing. The others return with some medicine to soothe the cough and a muff to keep her hands warm. She assures Rodolfo that she is better, and she falls asleep. As Musetta prays, Shannard discovers that Mimi has died. Rodolfo rushes to the bed, calling out Mimi's name in anguish. This is a story of Puccini's La Boheme. While much of the libretto is original to Puccini and his librettist Luigi Illica in Giuseppe Giacosa, the opera is based on Henri Merger's 1851 novel, Scène de la Vie de Bohème. The novel is a collection of vignettes portraying young bohemians living in Paris's Latin Quarter in the 1840s, and is a semi-autobiographical account of Merger's life. In 1849, Merger and the playwright Théodore Berrier adapted the novel into a play, 
which aimed its attention onto the relationship between Rodolfo and Mimi. The story of these Bohemians was something quite familiar to Puccini. During his time studying at the Milan Conservatory, as well as the years leading up to the creation of his earlier opera, Madame Lascaux, Puccini led a similar life to those in Merga's novel. Food and clothing were regularly scarce, and paying rent was a constant struggle. Although he was granted a small monthly stipend by the Congression of Charity in Rome, he frequently pawned his possessions in order to cover basic expenses. And this is where we will pick back up in Puccini's life after the break. music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle, to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite, and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car, and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiancé. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash thecomposerchronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. using another French subject, Manon Lascaux. This is where Puccini's journey towards La Boheme begins, split between his professional and private life. Let me begin with his private life. Amidst writing his earlier opera Edgar, Puccini and Elvira Gemignani, his former piano student, eloped despite the disapproving eye of his and Elvira's families. Puccini and Elvira had been wrapped up in an affair for quite some time, 
and when she became pregnant with Puccini's child, it was time that she left her husband. He moved them into a dilapidated apartment in Milan, and there they stayed for quite some time. The creation of Manalosco was underway, but the failure of Edgar had kept him wretchedly poor. He could barely pay rent on the apartment that he had moved his family into. They were often ill due to the unending cold. Their son Antonio, often called just Tonio, was an embarrassment to two different families. Puccini's married sisters criticized him greatly, and his other sister Eugenia, a nun, prayed constantly for his soul. The pressure from his family, as well as Avira's, caused the couple to consider separation, and at times they lived apart for long periods of time. Puccini was accustomed to his bohemian lifestyle, having lived through it during his conservatory years. But Alvira was not, and they had a son to think about. Luckily, Manon was a great success, establishing Puccini's reputation as the most promising rising composer of his generation. People called him the most likely successor to Verdi as the leader of Italian opera, and this gave him some more financial stability. But let's rewind a bit and look at Puccini's professional life that set him up for La Boheme. When looking for his next opera, Fontana had suggested the topic of Manon, but this is where Puccini's aversion to working with librettists begins. When beginning the opera, Puccini announced that he would write his own libretto so that, quote, no fool of a librettist could spoil it. However, Puccini's publisher, Casa Ricordi, persuaded him to accept Ruggiero Leoncavallo as his librettist. The pairing didn't last. Puccini cut their ties quite quickly and moved on to his next librettist, leaving Fontana and Leoncavallo abandoned. Puccini cycled through four other librettists before landing on Luigi Iliga and Giuseppe Giacosa. Although Giacosa came in to help polish off the libretto, he is often not listed as one of the three librettists, while Ilica is. Regardless, it is because of this that Puccini found the two of them and stuck with them through the creation of La Boheme, Tosca, and Madame Butterfly. And so, here we are again. Those two diverged rows combined again. But his sordid past would only continue to nip at his ankles. After Manon Lascaux, Puccini was confronted by Ricordi with several suggestions, but in general Puccini fashion, he was impossible to please. However, Ilica was convinced that La Boheme was the best next step. This would be an important work for years to come, but for some reason Puccini was hard to sway. If it wasn't for Ilica's persistence, with Ricordi's help, we may not have La Boheme today. Writing La Boheme with Puccini was difficult for the two librettists. Occasionally, Puccini would completely disregard what his librettists would write. There were moments when Puccini would just write music and ask them to fit words into the rhythm of that new music, which created significant difficulties in keeping a story. However, this was far from Puccini's problems with writing the opera. Re-enter Ruggiero Leoncavallo. It was standard practice that composers, librettists, and publishers refrained from announcing upcoming projects in order to prevent rivals from learning their plans. 
But this time, it didn't work out as planned. After Puccini cut him out of working on Manolo Scrooge, Leoncavallo began working on his own opera, Pagliacci. With the premiere of Pagliacci in 1892, Leoncavallo became famous. Puccini became increasingly afraid that Leoncavallo would begin taking all of his work. This fear truly came to fruition when the two met by chance at a cafe in Galleria. They sat down in the cafe to discuss their work, and when Puccini announced that he was writing La Boheme, Leoncavallo was stunned. He too was composing La Boheme, using his own libretto, the one that he had offered to Puccini a few years earlier. This was true. Leoncavallo had in fact brought his libretto of La Boheme to Puccini, asking him to set music to it. But Puccini didn't even look at the libretto before flatly refusing to write the opera. So, Leoncavallo decided to use his new fame to write his own La Boheme, not knowing that Puccini would betray him one day. A public battle between the two began. They would make public statements about the rights to La Boheme in local newspapers, despite La Boheme being public domain. Eventually, Puccini released a statement saying, quote, Now for reasons that are easily understood, I do not have time to be as courteous as I might wish to be toward him as friend and musician. Anyway, what does this matter to Maestro Leoncavallo? Let him compose. I will compose. The audience will decide. I only want to let it be known that I have been working seriously on my idea for about two months, that is, since the premiere of Manonosco in Turin, and I have made no secret of that to anyone. And so they both completed their own versions of La Boheme. Puccini's version came first in February of 1896, while Leoncavallo's came over a year later in May of 1897. Puccini's premiere took place in Turin at the Teatro Reggio and was conducted by the young Arturo Trasconini. Ironically, the premiere was received with little enthusiasm. Critics were polarizing and the audience basically shrugged at the opera. Despite the initial response, the opera quickly became popular throughout Italy. A few months later, the opera began to spread outside of Italy with its first performance taking place in Buenos Aires, Argentina. The battle between Leoncavallo and Puccini resurfaced when the former premiered his version of the opera. It was received well, confirming to the public that Leoncavallo was an equal rival. But Puccini's version overshadowed his own. Despite a revision of the opera and retitling it to Mimi Pinson, Leoncavallo's version is rarely performed today. As for Puccini, this was only the beginning of his success. Madame Lasco had propelled him forward, but La Boheme brought him fame beyond his wildest dreams. No longer was he the bohemian portrayed in the opera. He was a rising star, and no one was going to get in his way. This episode of The Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and edited by me, Stephen Shigar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a rating and a review. Join our community of music lovers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Con Podcast. Here you can engage with our incredible community of music professionals and enthusiasts while staying up to date on news pertaining to our past guests. For more information about this podcast and to learn more about the composers, music professionals, and other featured guests on the show, visit alexandriamedia.org slash thecomposerchronicles. Next week, we continue the Christmas theme, but on a happier note with J.S. Bach's musical setting of the biblical canticle Magnificat. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.